You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. So let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. Starting in chapter 1. And Titus is a little book. So if you're looking for it, it's after 2 Timothy. Keep going. It's at the end of the New Testament. You'll get there. But hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before the time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And I tried to say that all in one breath, but I didn't really get through it because it's all one long run-on sentence in Greek for crying out loud. Come on, Paul, break it up every once in a while, amen? Uh, sometimes I feel like Peter's like, man, I love you, but man, I have no idea what you're talking about. Verse four, uh, to Titus, who is my true son, this is Paul speaking, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord, it is absolutely true and it is given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, man, we are thankful and full of gratitude. We are uh, people that want to be more overwhelmed by the love that you have for us. We want to be people who convictionally believe and understand this through your loving kindness that leads people to repentance, not yelling at them. And I pray we would be a body that embodies that reality for, for a world that needs to know and experience this great love that God has for all humanity. So help us this morning. Help us to see the truth in this word so we can go and live this out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So some of you may be asking the question like, why, why this book? Why the book of Titus? Why spend five weeks kind of unpacking this book? And so I want to answer why this book by answering another question. And that is this, what do we as a church want to be about for the next three to five years? So this is a question that uh, our staff and our elders have actually been talking about and working through over the last couple years. Uh, we've spent some, some focused time over the last several months, like really looking at this. And in, and in some ways, I don't know if you guys feel this, but I feel this, uh, especially after, you know, 12 months of all that we've kind of experienced uh, with all the COVID stuff. I feel like we are in a space where we're almost like we're relaunching as a church. People are coming back. Uh, people are feeling more comfortable gathering in large spaces like this. And, it's, and I feel like it's a beautiful opportunity for us to almost... Not that we're redefining ourselves, but kind of realigning ourselves and defining what are we going to be about all these next three to five years as the church, so to speak, begins to kind of come back. You know, you know there's a whole explanation of that, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And so if I had to, to sum this up, and I'm just asking that you guys receive this with open hands, all right, real open hands. This is still in the incubator stage of like uh, refining, reworking, and uh, still, still in process. I like to call it a living document, right? It's going to change maybe a little bit. So open-handed with this statement. But if I had to kind of nail down what we want to be about over the next three to five years, it would be this. I want us to fill this community 
with disciples of Jesus. So it kind of builds a little bit after Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Like, this is what we're to be about as a church. We don't have to define this. This has been defined for us. Jesus says the church is to be about making disciples. And so part of what I want us to be about over the next three to five years is to say, man, we're going to fill this community with disciples. We're just not, we're just not after people getting their butts in a seat. At the end of the day, we're not, I'm not walking out of here on Sundays going, hallelujah, we had a bunch of butts today. Man, that was awesome. Look at all of these butts today. Now, that's, that is not getting me up on Sunday morning to roll in here. Yes, I want this auditorium to be filled. But at the end of the day, that's not what I'm after. That's not what we're after as a church here. We're not after budget, making sure we meet budget, even though like I just talked about it two minutes ago, it's kind of a big deal. Like, I want you to give, not because I want us to make sure we meet the budget at the end of the fiscal year. I want you to give so you stop worshiping money. Amen? And the way you stop worshiping money is you start giving for crying out loud. And if you want to care about what's going on, not only in this church, but throughout the world with the gospel, then guess what you got to do? You got to be this with your money. As long as you're like this with your money, I'm telling you right now, you will not give a rip about what's going on in the world when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why I want you to give. But I'm also not about making sure we meet budget. If that's the case, then I suck at that, all right? Because for 10 years, we have struggled financially here. So I'm a pretty sucky financial guy, amen? But at the end of the day, that's not what I'm about. At the end of the day, we're not about buzz. You know what buzz is, right? Ooh, what's going on here? Oh, they're doing this, they're doing that. It's all stinking manufactured energy, and that's not what I'm about. I'm not trying to make sure you feel buzz about what's going on here at Sojourn J-Town. Oh, man. No, we want to be a people that fill this community with disciples of Jesus. And here's kind of the, the phrase that is really important for me. Who are a faithful, loving presence. So my using faithful and loving is kind of my attempt, even though I'm not getting this on my own. It's not like something new, but it's my attempt to try to sum up the fruit of the Spirit. At the end of the day, the fruit of the Spirit is about faithfulness and love is what it's about. And it's about your presence, your faithful, loving presence. And what I mean by presence is basically how you show up. How do, how do people experience you? And this is what, like, this is what I'm about. I, I want you to show up with a faithful, loving presence that smells and feels a lot like Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, I've met a lot of Christians who know a lot about their Bible, who know a ton of theology, but man, their presence feels like the devil. Amen? They feel arrogant, they feel prideful, they feel self-righteous, they feel like all prickly. It's like, who are you? Man, I, when I encounter the Jesus of the Gospels, man, there's something about him that just, want, you want to be with him. You don't just want to hear from him. You also want to be in his presence. And that's 
what I want with our community, with the church that God is creating here, that I want you to go out into this world, into J-Town, Fern Creek, wherever you live, and be a disciple of Jesus who, who is, this is your embodiment, a faithful, loving presence. Because I'm convinced, as we will see in Titus, that one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to classmates in your school, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your neighbors, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to people that you work with, is your transformed and transforming presence. And I think this is what's going on in this little letter of Titus. Because I think Paul is helping Titus see that this is how people are going to be reached in the island of Crete by a community of people who are embracing the truth of the gospel. And they're not just leaving it there in their heads, but they're embodying it. And it becomes a part of their DNA and their presence is changing people's lives. That's what's going on in this little letter. And that's why it's really important for us to look at it for a few weeks. So hopefully you're okay with that because it's not a vote. Amen? We're jumping in. So here's what I think we need to do just this morning. I think there's three things that are really important for us to know when it comes to unpacking this book. And here are the three. I want to talk about Paul, right? You got, you got, who's Paul? Well, he's the guy that wrote the letter, so you got to figure out a little bit about Paul, so I don't want to make any assumptions here. I want to talk about Titus and Crete. They kind of go together because Titus is left in Crete. What's going on with those two guys, or the guy in place, all right? And then I want to just land the plane with, like, what's the theme? What's the aim? What's the direction of this book? Which I've already alluded to in the intro, so it's kind of like a bookend, which is what really good when you do that in a sermon. Amen? So here we go. Number one, uh, Paul. So most of us, well, I'm not going to make that assumption. Some of us may know this, but and it's okay if you don't know it. The backstory of Paul is found in Acts chapter 9. So if you've never read about his story, I encourage you to go home and read it. So Paul was a terrorist. Like he hated Christians and he tried to do everything he can to kind of just destroy them. Like dragging people out of their homes and killing them. That was his whole role in his life. Acts chapter 9, we read about a time when Jesus shows up and literally shows up and he sees Jesus and his life is forever changed. And you get these um, little hints of what he was before and then who he is now. And one of those is in 1 Timothy chapter one. Look what he says about himself and starting in verse 13. So even though I, this is Paul talking about himself, was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an arrogant man, all right? So follow that. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So notice, notice what he does not say. He does not say, I blasphemed, E-D. He doesn't say, I persecuted, E-D, right? He says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was formerly a persecutor. This was a, a part of who he was. This was his identity now at that time. He was an arrogant, prideful man. This was all before he met Jesus. This is what, what made Paul, Paul. I was a blasphemer. 
I was a persecutor and I was an arrogant man. That's the core of who Paul was. But now, because of the mercy and grace of God, Paul is an absolutely different person at the core of his being. And if you ever question whether the gospel of Jesus Christ can change your life, just read about Paul. Look what he says here in verse 1. Paul, a what? A servant. This is identity language. So whenever we hear servant, it's hard for us to get our minds around what maybe is going on here. Some of us think like a butler, right? You know, you think like Alfred from Batman or I don't know if you, or Downton Abbey, all the people lived in the basement, whatever you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, they're just butlered. Well, that's way too light here. That's not what's going on. And when he calls himself a servant, that's not exactly what he's saying. And another word you can use, a literal translation of this would be slave but that carries all kinds of cultural baggage in our moments. So, and maybe it, a little too hard, kind of like picture that. Another translation that some of you may have would be bondservant. And the problem with bondservant is like, what does that mean? Right? It's like, no one goes around saying, I'm a Christian and a bondservant. Okay, right. I've never seen a t-shirt, bondservant. Because like, it requires all kinds of explanation. But it actually is a better translation but you've got to give some explanation up to it. So a bondservant is someone who willingly sells themselves into slavery for a period of time to help pay off a debt. And what we learn in the Old Testament is that uh, a Hebrew person could not be bound to slavery for life. So they had six years that they could freely sell themselves into slavery. But at the seventh year, which was kind of the year of Jubilee, whether they had their they're debt paid or not, they were set free. It was a year of jubilee. Wouldn't it be great to do that now in the sense of like your mortgage, six years, seventh year of jubilee. I, I would, that would be hallelujah time. I'm, I'm willing to bring that back from the Old Testament. Now, now Deuteronomy 15, all right. Here, but there is one exception here, one exception to being set free. And that is this. It says this in verses 16 to 17 of chapter 15 of Deuteronomy. Look what it says. But if your slave says to you, I don't want to leave you. Why? Because he loves you and your family, and he's well off with you. Take an hour, an hour, however you say that, and pierce through his ear into the door, which sounds really painful, and he will become your slave for life. So, so what's going on here, if, if they choose to do this, they would take this sharp spike, is what that all is, and they would pierce the servant's ear with a spike to the door of the house. And this was kind of a metaphorical, symbolic way of basically saying this, you are nailed to this household. You are bonded here. You are, in essence, giving up your freedom and you want to do this and you're pledging to serve your master for life. This is what Paul is declaring about himself. He's not a butler for God. I'm a bondservant. I'm freely, willingly submitting my life to the rule of God. It, another way of even thinking about this is, is in Matthew where Jesus says, come all, to me all who are weary and heavy laden, laden and I'll give you rest. Take my, what does he say? Yoke upon you. So take my yoke upon you. Why? Because my yoke is easy. It's light. Yoke is a work instrument, but also it's, it's a metaphor for submission to to be directed, to be guided. And so, so when Paul says, I'm a servant of God, I am one who is willingly and gladly setting my life under the reign of God. I 
am a servant of God. And some of you in this room may think of that and go, wow, that sounds like a drag, right? You know, that sounds awful to be a servant of somebody. Well, here's the newsflash. You're serving somebody. You have a yoke on you. It's either the yoke is light because it's the yoke of Jesus or it's a burden and it's heavy. So you're serving somebody. Don't think you're this autonomous individual blazing your own trail. You're not. And Paul understood this, man. He understood this rightly. And he got it. That if I'm gonna serve someone, then I'm gonna serve the one that has my best interest in mind and his name is Jesus. So Paul is a, a servant of God, but look, he also identifies himself as an apostle. You just see that, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle literally means sent one or a messenger. So to be an apostle, apostle is to be sent. I keep wanting to say impossible. I don't know why I want to say that, but it's been going on since nine o'clock. So here we go again. To be an apostle is to be sent as a representative or a, an ambassador so Paul's description of himself, the defining of who he is, carries both humility and great honor. So not only is he a, a servant of God, but he's also a sent one of God who's a carrier of a message of the gospel that brings hope. And so look, look, there's a whole lot of similarities to, to this for us, all right? So yes, granted, and I'm, you know, yeah, I think this is, I think this is fine to kind of go here. Paul would be capital A apostle. Right? So there's a unique, narrow definition of this apostle, apostleship where there was a, a select group of men, about 14, that, that had seen Jesus physically. They, they were instruments in developing and the building of the early church, given powers to do miracles and raise the dead and all these kind of things. So that's kind of capital A apostle. We don't have those capital A apostles, personally conviction where we are, uh, because we believe after those 14 died, that, that capital A was done away with. But we have, this is sign language, little a, amen. I learned that during the nine because I butchered it in the nine. I did E and O and who knows, I may have spelled a cuss word up here. I don't know. But here's little a apostle. And that's all of us who are in Christ. You're a sent one. Every single one of us who are followers of Jesus are little a apostles. That's why we do a benediction every single Sunday. And I know, man, we got to figure this out, stuff we got to work on. I'm not sure if this is great anymore. Just always makes me feel weird when we do that. It's like, ah, that's a little weird. Maybe we should go here. I don't know. This feels a little, uh, I don't know. You know. Are you with me? Nobody's like laughing at that. Nine o'clock got it. So you know what this looks like, amen, right? That doesn't feel right to me. This maybe feels right a little bit. I don't know. We just got to work on that a little bit. But here's the thing with the benediction that I love that we do because every week I'm reminded and you're reminded that you're walking out of here as a sent one. You're not just a, you know, Johnny that's working at Starbucks or at McDonald's or a realtor or going to school or I'm selling. Like, that's not just who you are. You are an apostle. Little A, please don't walk out of here and quote me. Oh, Lyle leaves and believes in apostles. Big A. No little A, right? You are a sent one that's leaving here as an individual that's, that carries and embodies the message of hope. 
that this world and your neighbor and your family and your coworkers and your friends at school desperately not only need to hear, but also see. That's why presence matters. That's who Paul is. This is what I once was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but Jesus. Not I read a book and became a better person. (laughs) Jesus showed up in my life and I'm gladly a servant of God. And I'm an ambassador, a representative, a carrier of this message of hope. So just like, just for a second, like, how do you understand yourself? Who do you say you are? I mean, I can't be the only person in this room that asks that question all the time. Who am I? Well, here's the good news of the gospel, right? It is such good news. That burden of trying to figure that out has been relieved. You don't have to go through life trying to define yourself. The invitation of the gospel is to come be in relationship with Jesus and discover who you are now that you are in Christ. And at the core of who you are, first and foremost, is a child of God. And that identity alone brings about drastic change in your life. And then coming out of that, there's all kinds of things. And one of those is you're a servant. You're a servant of God. So no matter what you do, starting tomorrow, rolling in school, rolling the work, whatever it is, you are coming in there as an individual who is under submission of Jesus Christ. And you're coming in there gladly being a servant of Jesus. And in essence saying, Jesus, show me how to do my job in the way that you would do my job if you were me. And you're not only a servant, you're sent there. Yeah, maybe you did the job interview and you killed it and you got the job. But I'm telling you what, here's what I believe. God providentially put you in that job. Not just to, I mean, yes, to do a good job. Yes, do great, work good. God wants that. But he also wants you to embody this message to where people get a taste, not perfectly, but a taste of what Jesus would feel like if he was working right next to them. What a privilege. What a privilege. And that is who you are. You don't have to go define yourself. Stop carrying that burden. It's not your burden to kind of figure out. Get in relationship with Jesus and allow him to define you and live out of that identity. So that's Paul. I'll be fast. Titus and Crete. Here we go. Verse four. So Paul, the one who's writing this letter, is writing this to Titus. And look how he describes him. He describes him as my true son in our common faith. So most likely Titus is a Greek Christian. So it wasn't a Jew, it was a Greek that came a Christian. And most likely, I, I think because of the way Paul talks about him as my true son, that uh, he came to faith in Christ under 
Paul's ministry and preaching. And so, so obviously what we see here too is that uh, he was kind of a co-worker and a fellow church planner along with Paul. But he's also, I don't even know how to kind of explain this other than the best I can do, is like sort of like a director of these house churches that are going on in the island of Crete. So not only is he a, a, a co-worker and a fellow, you know, ministry partner with Paul, Paul's leaving him here as a pastor to sort of help give direction and leadership to all these house churches that are happening on the island of Crete. And we'll see this in verse five, we'll look at this next week, but he leaves them there with two purposes. And that is to go and straighten out what was left unfinished and to appoint elders in every single town. And so he, he leaves him on this island called Crete, which is an absolutely beautiful place. So there's a little map here. It kind of shows you where it is. Just right off, it's a little island right off of Greece. But man, I'm telling you, it is a stunning place. Even to this day, it's a favorite vacation spot for those that live in Greece. Look at this. Isn't that beautiful? And another picture. Another one there. I mean, that's amazing. And I don't know about you, you'd be tempted to go, oh, yeah, Titus is really suffering, huh? Yeah. It's like when I hear somebody say, hey, I'm going to go plant a church in Hawaii. It's like, dude, I want in on that gig, right? You know, I got some friends that are down in the 30A area. That's such a beautiful part of Florida. I'm going, sometimes I think, is there an opening? You know what I'm saying? Like, that just sounds like a great place to be. But, but here's the thing. Even though it's a beautiful spot, as we know, any time you go and establish a gospel presence, it's going to be really hard because your enemy is invisible, Satan hates it, and he will do whatever it takes to destroy a church. So yeah, beautiful place for Titus to be, but I'm telling you what, it is a really hard, difficult work that Titus was left to do. We see this in verse 12, that even, um, even their own people had this to say about Cretans that lived on this island. It says this, Cretans are always liars and evil brutes. They're lazy Gluttons. They were known for their dishonesty, so much so that there was a slang term that, that they used to describe them. It's, it's to cretinize, which just basically meant to lie, to distort the truth. So Crete was a unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual promiscuity. It's like the, you know, wild feasts that were going on that was filled with all kinds of immorality. I mean, just try to, uh, you know, imagine the, the wild, wild west meets kind of the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? It's kind of like that. Those kind of two groups of people are what made this island a place that if we knew all the stuff that was going on here, we would all say, ah, let's stay away from there, right? That just doesn't seem very safe. Doesn't seem family friendly, amen? <laughs> but not Paul and Titus. They saw the same thing and said, hey, we need to plant a church. And at the heart of what Paul is saying in this little letter, not only is he giving Titus encouragement and instructions here, he is also helping him understand how are these house churches going to reach the people in Crete? You see, Paul wasn't just satisfied with having some churches there. He didn't give Titus the task of just managing them. Like, Make sure they're okay. Keep them comfortable. Make sure you have the air at certain degrees every Sunday morning. Make sure it's music that they all enjoy, that they're happy about. Just keep them comfortable. That's what you got to do. No, that's not what Paul is about, nor is it what Titus is about. He's going, no, we want to reach people in Crete. And the means, not the only means, but what we see in Titus 
is the means by which we're going to reach people in Crete is when a community of people like us not only embrace the truth of the gospel, but embody it. It's through our presence, through our loving, faithful presence in a watching world is the means by which God is going to use to reach the island of Crete. And what I would put before you, how he's going to reach people here in our community. Now, where do you get that? Well, it's in verse one there with this little word godliness. And this is kind of the aim, the purpose of Titus. Look what he says here in verse one. For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads, say it out loud, to what? So knowledge is not enough. Amen? Can I just get an amen with that? We're Westerners and we believe knowledge is enough. So I, I translate it like this. Information does not equal transformation. So our goal as followers of Jesus Christ is not to get more knowledge. That doesn't always mean you're going to be a changed person. I mean, just, it just takes someone stepping back and looking at the evangelical landscape and we can draw the conclusion that you can know a bunch of stuff and still feel like the devil. Amen? But it's a knowledge of the truth, which that's very important, but it's always leading to something and that leading to something is godliness. And godliness, simply put, is just godly behavior that's made visible. It's how you're experienced. It's, it's the word presence, what I'm getting after here. It's godliness, godly behavior that is that is seen, that is made visible. And I love how Paul shows us the emphasis of this on how he repeats this little word, good. Several times, follow me. Chapter one, I think you're all on the screen. Verse eight, look what he says here. This is talking about elders, and we'll get into this next week. But they're to be hospitable, loving, here's our word, what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, same chapter, verse 16. This is what the false teachers were not doing. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for, here's our word, any good work. Chapter two, verse three, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. He's up on the wine, ladies. They are to teach what, there's our word, what is it? Good, right? He's not done. Chapter two, verse 14. He, talking about Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem for us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do what? Say it out loud. Good works. Thought that would be enough. Not for Paul. Chapter three, verse one. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every, say it out loud. Good work. Not done. Chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on all these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. They are good and profitable for everyone. You thought that's enough. We get it, Paul. No, nope, he's not done. The verse right before he ends the book, look what he says, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to what? Good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Why? Why does Paul say this over and over and over? Titus, man, I want you to get this. Make sure you're helping our people understand that we want them to be eager to do good works. Why? Not just for themselves. Like, 
Yes, I believe godly living is the best living. I do. You may disagree. That's all right. But I do believe that obeying God is the best way to live in this world, right? But it's not just for you. He wants them to live good lives because their good lives is a means by which God uses to bring about the spread of the gospel. That's why. That your presence, how you live, guys, matters. And it's a powerful change agent in someone's life. That's why he is emphasizing over and over and over, be eager to do what is good. Look, guys, Christianity is a way of life, not a cultural identifier. Christianity is a way of life, not who you vote for. Christianity is a way of life, not I go to church on Sunday, so I'm a Christian. Christianity is a way of life. I pray, so I'm a Christian. Christianity is a way of life. Oh, I believe in God, so I'm a Christian. I mean, what did they call Christians before they were called Christians in the book of Acts? Yeah, they call them the followers of the way. This is way before Mandalorian came around, right? This is the way. It's weird, odd, but you know what I'm saying. Glad there's a few more people. In the nine, I got like nothing. Like, you guys need to watch some TV. I'm just teasing. All right. Um, but the reason why they were called this is because of the way they lived. There's a, there's a, there's a, there was a countercultural, just a, a way that, that felt sacrificial, not just felt, but it was seen as sacrificial. The way that people experience them is like, man, what is going on? This, this doesn't make sense to me. Well, of course it's not going to make sense to you unless the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in you and he changes you from a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant person to now a servant of God. One who is humble, truthful, faithful, loving, that's, that's a way of life. And just saying it out there, man, I don't want Christians that are just Christian as a cultural identifier. I want us to be followers of King Jesus. And I want our presence to be life-changing in other people's lives. That's why we've called this series a beautiful church. I mean, yes, I care about aesthetics here. I do. And unfortunately, I think the evangelical church has lost a little bit of that. You know, I used to make fun of our church. It used to be called like the Baptist beige. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever been in those churches where all the, the only color they have is beige? It's like, for real? There's, there, God's given us a big palette. Amen. We can probably paint something different than beige. That's why I'm always getting on you guys about like candy during 
You know, trunk or treat, don't get crappy candy, get good candy. Why? Because everything we do shows something about who God is. We did the feast a few years ago before COVID happened and we just didn't have donuts and a box out there. That's stupid, right? Because we're telling something about who God is when someone who doesn't know Jesus walks out there and if we call it a feast, let's make it look like a feast, right? But here's the point. Beautiful church is not just the aesthetics in the building, but ultimately it's its people. It's its people living beautiful lives before a watching world. So what about us, Lyle? Are we a beautiful church or a complacent church? Are we eager to do what is good no matter what the cost is? Do we really care about people who do not know Jesus? So Lyle, what about us? Are we a beautiful church or a complaining church? So Lyle, what about us? Are we a beautiful church or a consumer church? Do we leave here evaluating the service more than evaluating our lives by the truth of the word that's sung and spoken week in and week out? Well, I would answer yes to every single one of those questions because it's not either or. It's not either you're a beautiful church or a complaining church or either you're a beautiful church or a consumer church or either you're a beautiful church or a complacent church. I would say yes to all of those because there's only one who is beautiful and his name is Jesus. That is who is beautiful. And if you are in Christ, your life is now hidden in Christ. And so therefore you are beautiful. You are beautiful beautiful and your life is beautiful. And so we as a church are not living up to being a beautiful church. We're living into it. So you better believe it. It's both because we are all hidden in Christ. Yes, we are a beautiful church, but dadgummit, we're also a complacent church, aren't we? We are. Yes, we are a beautiful church because our lives are hidden in Christ. But man, we're a complaining church. You know, Lyle, you don't preach enough Bible. You know, Lyle, you preach too much Bible. You know, Lyle, the music's too loud. Lyle, I couldn't hear the music today. You know, Lyle, it's also awful hot in here all the time. You know, Lyle, I got to bring a blanket on the summertime in order to stay warm here. I mean... So yes, we are. We're complaining. I complain. <laughs> so yes, we are a beautiful church and you better believe it, we are consumeristic. Yes. And if there's anything that COVID has taught us in relationship to church is that we don't fare very well when our privileges are pressed.
It saddens me when I hear Christians call this persecution. Look, whenever they drag me out, whenever the government comes and drags me out and blows my head off because I'm proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then persecution, right? Putting a mask on, having to kind of keep our space a little bit. That is not persecution. It's just exposing this consumeristic truth that's in all of us, including me. Like I'm not saying something that's not in me. It's in me. But the good news is this. This is the good news, guys. You're not either or. So you don't walk out of here with your head down. Oh, gosh, we suck as a church. My gosh, Lyle was yelling at us a whole bunch today. Oh, gosh. No. We walk out of here with our heads lifted up because our Savior, Jesus, is the one who is beautiful. And he has not given up on his church. I'm so done with hearing all the new Gallup polls are saying, well, the church is drowning, blah, 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 blah. Nobody's coming back. You're going to lose 20% of your congregation. So pre-COVID, just subtract 20%. And that might be true, but there's a part of me going, you know what? Numbers never really bothered Jesus. In fact, whenever it got big, he just wanted to make it smaller. He started out with 11. And those guys were not stellar, amen? We learned last week, we're worshiping you, but we're doubting. Worshiping you, but we're not sure. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the church in Acts grew to about 3,000. Ah, we need to shrink it down. Persecution. Jonathan and his little armor barrier story in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, somewhere in there, somewhere in the Old Testament, right? Two guys battling an army of over 100,000. Ah, we can do it. Let's go. We got God. I don't think God is freaking out about the numbers. But here's what I'm confident about. Look at how many people are in here right now. Look around. If all of us said, all right, I'm a beautiful person in Jesus Christ, and I'm not going out here living it perfectly, but by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I'm saying, okay, God, I want to step in and be a faithful, loving person presence to whoever it is I'm working with. And let's see, let's see what God can do with over 150 people in this room who are done with living for themselves and saying, no more, I'm a servant of God. I'm a carrier of the message of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to step in here as that person, because that is who I am. And let's see what God can do with a beautiful church that's living out what is already true about them as a beautiful person in Jesus Christ. That's Titus. Come back next week. <laughs> Let's pray. God, I, I ask that you would help my unbelief, and I'm sure there are many of us in this room that struggle to believe that you can work in that powerful way through our lives. Through us being obedient to you, following you, seeking after you, 
and being a faithful, loving presence. What, what kind of change can you do in our homes, in our communities? So God, man, man, our confidence is not in us. It's in you. So please help us. In Christ's name, amen. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Eat this, and I'm almost dropping it here, guys. Sorry. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine like this, and he said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So each time we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we are announcing the death of Christ until he returns. And so as we partake in communion here, Sojourn, here's uh, how we do that. Uh, we encourage you to go to one of these four stations. There's two in the front and two in the back. Uh, and, and we're trying to, as best we can, even with all the little restrictions, we're getting a place where we can lift this eventually. But we want, to, want you to gather around the table, maybe two to three, four of you, instead of just going up individually and grabbing it and going on your own. Go around the table, allow them just to say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And I just encourage you to look up. Look at another brother, sister in Christ. You guys are united together through the gospel of Jesus. And then you can go back and take communion uh, when you're ready. But if you're not a Christian, man, we don't want you to take this meal. This, this will do nothing for you. We want you to receive Jesus. And one of the best things you can do, if you just want to have a conversation, man, you can go to that little blue start here sign out in the atrium. There'll be someone there that would love to talk to you more about what it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. So church, whenever you're ready to take communion, you can stand up and go to one of these four stations. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.